And I actually took my high school graduation picture and put it on my shelf in my living room when I made the decision to um, separate and then finally divorce to remember who I was at 18 because I had lost that person. Ladies, welcome to the Healing Cassandra podcast. I'm your host, Margo Alexis. And to kick things off, I want to let you know that the Healing Cassandra membership community is now open for enrollment. And if you're wondering, is this a community for me? Well, let me have you ask yourself some questions. Are you a woman in a neurodiverse relationship who's ready to look inside yourself and begin to take care of yourself? Are you a woman experiencing the painful effects of Cassandra syndrome and want to work on transforming your health and well-being? Or perhaps you're a woman who's longing to regain your identity, increase your confidence and self-esteem, and build a better future for yourself. If you answered yes to any of these questions, this community is definitely for you. Why struggle alone? Healing can be lonely, and Healing Cassandra creates a safe space where you are valued and believed. It's a home where you can have authentic connection, where you can share stories, experiences, and ideas with women who are living the same trials and tribulations as you. So if this looks like it's something that you're interested in, head on over to our website, www.healingcassandra.com, and take a look at the information there, and you can sign up. And now, let's begin our interview with our guest, Mona. I'm so happy today to have our guest, Mona, and we're going to be speaking on a topic that I've wanted to talk about for quite a while now. Um, Mona has been in a um, relationship with her husband on the spectrum, and she chose to divorce. And I know that I've done several podcasts where I've talked to women who have been married for a long time and, and they choose to stay in their marriage. So I thought I would mix it up a little bit and uh and speak about what it's like to be in a neurodiverse marriage and decide it's time for me to divorce, it's time for me to find a new path. So I'd like to welcome Mona. Hi, it's so wonderful to be here, Margot. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, thank you for being here. So let's start out with what attracted you to your husband and how did the two of you meet? Well, we met when we were 21 and I'm, I just turned 58. So we were young, naive 21 year olds. And we were actually working at the same place. We were working at a, a glass installation company and he was the only person there it was al- almost all Hispanic men. He was the only person who didn't flirt with me, who didn't talk to me. And there was something intriguing about him. And he was the foreman there. And I walked back to the warehouse where they were making the the windows and started talking to him. And it turned out that um, he was a uh, a writer. He had been writing lyrics for songs. And he was very creative and very spiritual. But nobody knew that about him. Being a social worker, I just started asking all kinds of questions, and I was really intrigued. And it turned out that we had just both read the book Out on a Limb by Shirley MacLaine, which is a very metaphysical book about reincarnation. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, there's something about this guy that nobody else knows about. And I was attracted to him. Um, And then I asked him out, Margo. 
Oh, you so, asked about. I did. I said, I said, what do you do on the weekends? And he told me, you know, that he would go to some clubs and stuff. And I said, well, I have a place that I go to that's by my house. And there's a guy that plays guitar. Would you like to go with me? And he's like, yeah. <laughs> and that was, that was the beginning of our relationship. How long did you date before you actually got married? Yeah. So we dated for a year and then we lived together for a year. And I think the interesting thing is the reason we moved in together is because he had never lived on his own. And at that time we were 22. I had been away at college. I had lived on my own and I knew he lived, he's Hispanic and his mother did everything. She cooked, she cleaned, she, you know, did the laundry, everything. And so I needed to kind of test the waters and see if he could do those things because I wanted a partner. And so he had never done those things. He became a quick learner. He learned how to cook and clean and do the laundry. And he was, he was a great partner for that year that we lived together. And then I had to tell him that it was time for us to move our relationship forward. And I told him, you know, that I would like to get engaged and I told him what kind of ring I wanted. <laughs> I told him wow. I found somebody who could make the ring for us. And he bought the diamond from my grandfather. I mean, the whole thing, now that I look back, it was all kind of orchestrated, which made it easy for him. And then he proposed. I said I wanted him to propose while we were on a trip. So he took me to, I think it was Cancun. And he proposed in Cancun, Mexico. You were giving him tasks to do and he fulfilled them. <laughs> And he was, you know, he is the kindest, most loyal, intelligent, creative person that I know. Um, but we didn't know we were neurodiverse back then. Was there a period of time, like after you were married, that you saw a switch that he changed? Because I, I hear that from so many women. They feel like it was a bait and switch, like the person that they dated they were able to hold that mask and that behavior. But then once they married, you know, that mask fell down and they said, who is this person that I'm with now? I don't recognize him. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny because after four years of marriage, I wanted a divorce. And the reason I wanted a divorce is because I wouldn't say bait, bait and switch, but he really made me believe that he was career focused and wanted to make uh, a career out of his creative talents. And, you know, he had written like a hundred songs and we even turned our second bedroom into a recording studio, but he never seemed to get beyond a certain point. He was doing, I think, commercials with somebody at the time, but nothing in the creative realm for pay. And he didn't like any of his jobs. And we had decided we were going to have a child after five years of marriage and, you know, we were in the fourth year of our marriage and I didn't know how we were going to be able to support a child with his like weird trajectory as far as employment. And I was being promoted and I was growing as far as my career was going, but I didn't see that happening with him. So um, I told him I wanted a divorce and he got very, 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 very emotional um, very hurt. And my heart went out to him. And uh, he said he would change and he would work on all these things. And so I stayed for another 26 years. <laughs> looking back now, hindsight's 2020, but looking back now, do you wish at that time you would have would have just followed through with the divorce? 
Yeah, I think about that. And um, we've had some, we had some really amazing times, you know, we traveled and we had um, a lot of great times with friends and family, but there were always challenges with communication and with the emotional reciprocity piece and the social piece and all of that. However, I never stopped loving him, Margo. And I think that's what's challenging for a lot of couples. Um, And I still held out hope. And I also know that if we hadn't stayed together, we wouldn't have our daughter and she's 25. So, and she is just the most amazing person in the universe. So I have to look at all the great things and the good things. And really, I have learned so much and grown so much because of the relationship. I really have. Yeah, I know. I I have a son, so I I know that feeling. Sometimes I just think back that you have to center yourself in gratitude sometimes. What did this relationship bring me? And for me, it brought me a, a wonderful, you know, son that's, you know, I love to death. So, so was it the five year? Did you hit the five year mark when you had your daughter? Were you on schedule? No. And, and this was another problem in our relationship. And I think part of it has to do with the executive function, maybe anxiety, fears, you know, whatever was going on in his head. When we first started getting serious, he said um, that he didn't want to have any children. And I said, well, then I'm the wrong person for you. I want two kids. And in literally 30 seconds to a minute, he changed his mind and said, and I was, you know, 21, 22 years old. And he said, oh, I'll have one, but we have to wait five years. So um, we waited five years and then it turned into six, then seven, then eight. And finally, after nine years, we had our daughter. And believe me, it was hard because I did not know why he was holding off. And I think because he really knew his limitations and he knew that once he had a child, he would have to manage employment, uh, being a parent, and then being a spouse. And then, you know, he has family members that he wanted to stay in some kind of relationship with. I think it was too much for him. Absolutely too much. Raises yeah. raises the anxiety for them for sure. So, how far into the marriage was it when you thought something was amiss, and how did you figure out that perhaps you were in a neurodiverse relationship? I think from um, the early parts of our relationship, I knew something was different, and I'll tell you a few things. Um, and I've talked about this either in the podcast or on my Instagram account. Um, on our first date, my ex came to pick me up in a tuxedo um, shirt and a blazer and a uh, bow tie. Now this was 1985 and I, either the shirt or the bow tie was purple and the other one was white and the blazer he was wearing was striped purple and white. I looked at him and I almost laughed because I had never really seen anybody dressed like that in real life. I'd seen it on TV because it was the time of Miami Vice, you know, we were in Florida. Um, And so I knew he was different. Bow ties were not popular in 1985. (laughs) In addition, when we would go out, he would mimic other people's accents. So he would not mimic, I should say, mirror So if he was talking to somebody who was British, he would use their accent. He was talking to somebody who was Indian, he would use their accent. And it was almost immediate, he would turn it on. And I had to share with him that people are not going to receive that well. 
they know you're not from their country and they feel, they probably feel like you're mimicking them or patronizing them. And he had no idea. So he did stop that. And then there were, you know, communication, they call it communication roundabouts. So I knew we were different, but Marco, I didn't know until our 29th year of marriage about neurodiversity. And we had already been separated for a year and a half when I found out about it. Yeah. Interesting. So did you bring that to him? Did Was he diagnosed? Yeah. So I did bring it to him. Um, and the reason that I learned about it, and what's crazy, Margo, is I'm a social worker. I have a bachelor's and master's and a PhD in social work, but my first two degrees I got in the 80s when there was no such thing as Asperger's or ASD. So um, when I found out that he was probably on the spectrum, I did bring it to him and I did it in a horrible way. <laughs> he was having a meltdown. We were away um, for the weekend. He was having a meltdown about something and I just screamed at him and I said, I think you have Asperger's. I think you need to go get assessed. And he started screaming at me and I can laugh about it now. It was absolutely the worst, one of the worst nights of my life and his probably too. We were just fighting and he did say he would go get assessed and then he canceled the appointment. And then he finally did go to a, um, a therapist. He said he was going to go get assessed, but the, the therapist said to him, yes, you're probably on the autism spectrum. It's really hard to diagnose adults, but so what? Mm-hmm. And that's, that's when he heard. So what? So then how long after that did you um, get divorced? Yeah. So he, you know, I would send him, I was, I have to say, I was so desperate to transform our marriage once I knew and understood that we were a neurodiverse couple. I mean, I was reading everything I could get my hands on and I was watching videos and I was inundating him. So at the time we were separated. So I was texting him videos. I was emailing him videos. I even bought a book to send to him and then he never picked it up at his PO box. So he never even got it. Um, so he finally told me that he had read everything I had sent him one day when we were talking, but it didn't matter because for the first time in his life, he was living on his own. He had never lived on his own. And at a, at the age of 54 or 55, he had found happiness. And he even told me that and peace. And um, so I knew, and he even told me, I don't think I can ever move back into our house. And I don't think I can ever live with somebody again. So I was like, okay, well, then what would our marriage look like? I I wasn't thinking we can live in separate places and stay married or anything like that. So um, there was a major issue that that happened that made me move forward. I mean, we were separated, Marco, for two and a half years. And I didn't know we were neurodiverse until about a year and a half into our separation. So it was about nine to 12 months that I still held held out hope. We went to three therapists. None of them knew anything about autism spectrum differences or disorder. Um, I think all three of the therapists made things worse. uh, And there was no help and it was a waste of money. And he was not nice to me in therapy (laughs) at all. And then um, he would tell me, I'm going to divorce you. And then he would ask me to come back into the relationship and tell me how much he loved me and all this stuff. Finally, one day, um, I thought I was having a heart attack. It was the middle of the night. I woke up and um, I called 911 
And they told me my blood pressure was 70 over 40 and they were going to take me to the hospital. And I called him and he came after about an hour and he was cold and he was stoic. He didn't come over and hold my hand. He didn't hug me. He didn't ask me how I was doing, nothing. And they were running tests to see what was wrong with me. And uh, he was so cold. I'm like, if you're going to be that way, go home. And he screamed at me, he goes, I'm not going home. And I said, well, I'll just call my sister. He goes, no, I'm staying. And a few minutes later, he screamed at me, I'm going to divorce you next. And while I'm in the emergency room at the hospital, now I can laugh about it now because I know what was happening. And I think it's important for like your listeners to know he, he apologized profusely the next morning. He sent me a text and he was basically like, you know, you don't have to forgive me, but I'm so sorry for what I did. I know what happened. I woke him probably out of sound sleep or he was, you know, relaxing and he had to go to work the next day and he had never seen me in that kind of situation Mm -hmm. and he didn't know what to do and he was overwhelmed and um, he, he, he said he didn't know if he would ever forgive himself for what he did. But he was having a meltdown from the from the anxiety. Yeah. So then what happened? Did he really mean that? Or was that was that the straw that broke the camel's back, as they say, in the marriage for you? Yes, it was. It was. Because for two and a half years, I was hoping and hoping and hoping and hoping. And then when that happened, um, I had to have him take me home because I live in the country and we didn't have Uber service after I got discharged from the hospital. And I hadn't had a heart attack. Thank God. Um, and I said, when we get home, you're going to sit in the car. I'm going to go get my calendar and we're going to pick a date to go to the, the courthouse and file for divorce. And he's like, no, 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 no. I can do it by myself. And I said, nope. I said, you have threatened me with divorce at least six to 10 times and you have never followed through. This is the last straw. We're doing it. So he did wait in the car. We picked a date. I didn't think he would show up, Margo, but he did. He was actually early to the courthouse. And we sat outside the courthouse for about an hour and we talked mm-hmm. and he admitted, you know, not admitted, but we talked about Asperger's and we talked about autism and he uh, agreed that there were a lot of things that made sense to him looking through that lens. And he, he all said, if our daughter is on the autism spectrum, because I, I've always said she's a mini version of him in a lot of ways, he said to me, she should never be in a relationship. And isn't that interesting? Yeah, that's very interesting. And that he came to that realization. I mean, how ironic you're getting ready to go into the courthouse. And I also noticed that the marriage ended the same way it started. You you told him we're going to do this. And <laughs> Yeah, so that that is interesting. I want to um so circle back to your daughter. How old was she then when you um when you divorced? Was she grown? Yes, she was already an adult. And and I will be honest with you, she saw the tension in our marriage and she asked me cuz I was ready to divorce him um years before we actually separated. We separated in 2016 and I just was so lonely. And you know, so emotionally needing um, more. And I, I will share with your audience, because I think this is something I've said it on my podcast, but I think it's important for folks to know 
I wasn't getting the emotional reciprocity that I needed and wanted, but we had a great sex life. Really? Tell us more, Mona. (laughs) For the entire time we were together, the entire time, even when I didn't like his behavior, even when he got me pissed off or I got him pissed off, did a lot of makeup sex. And I really do think that sex was one of his special interests. Because he knew my body, he knew me so well, and he was just so amazing when it came to what went on behind closed doors. Um, And he was just so giving and so loving. And I think, to be honest with you, Margot, the emotional reciprocity that I didn't get, the physical intimacy that I got made up for the lack of the emotional intimacy and reciprocity. If we didn't have such an amazing sex life for all those years, I absolutely think I would have divorced him earlier because I did say to my daughter that I wanted to divorce him while she was in high school. And she asked me not to until she went to college. So I was ready to divorce him like in 2013, 2014. I couldn't stand the loneliness and the negativity. It was extremely negative. Yeah, I, I, I get that. And a lot of I hear that from a lot of women. And I've experienced that the, the, the negative vibe, you know, to be around all the time, it's contagious. And then it's hard to yeah. keep yourself up. But do you think also that um, the sex was an, an anxiety reliever for him? Oh, absolutely. A hundred percent. I will tell you, that's a great question. And I I think I'm sure it's important for a lot of um, listeners to hear this because I would see him before I knew we were neurodiverse, I would see him going through meltdowns. He was about to melt down and I didn't know that's what was going on. He would pace um, in the early days of our relationship. He would even hit his head. You know, he would take his palm of his hand and hit his forehead. And I was able to stop that behavior but he would pace and he would talk to himself. And I never knew what he was saying because he would whisper to himself or he would go pace outside um, or he would go for a drive or whatever. But one of the things that I noticed is when he was on the verge of a meltdown, I could get him to have sex and it would help calm him a little bit. It didn't take it all away. Well, ladies, there's something else for your toolbox. Now, you know, I'm, I may be an oddity because I was okay with having sex when he was in that state of mind. You know, I'm not sure everybody would, would want to, but I might just pull a bedroom or, you know, um, and, you know, he could perform usually without any problem. And uh, he, he would cuddle. So it would give him like an hour away from that anxiety and we might even fall asleep or whatever. So you know, I, I think that was a tool. <laughs> but then I want to ask you, so in your sex life, did were you satisfied? Did you in, enjoy the time with him? Absolutely. It was wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. And, you know, we explored and did all kinds of things and we were open and we could share. I really, really, really do think that there were two things that were outstanding in our marriage. One, our sex life. And two, when our daughter was young, we were really great co-parents. And I'll tell you why. Because he created routine for her. 
especially the first like, you know, five to seven years, she followed his routine and she adored him. Absolutely. She wanted me out of the picture. She even said said to me and um, she would laugh if I, if, if she listens to this, she was about six or seven and she says, mommy, sometimes I think about taking a knife and stabbing you. Now I know, I know she didn't mean it. She just wanted, and, and she'll laugh about this. What she wanted is she wanted to get me out of the picture because she had such a love for her daddy. Because when he was with her, he was a hundred percent with her. She became one of his special interests. He drew for her. He made up um, plays and stories for her. They played with their stuffed animals. You know, he took her. He took her serious in the playing and the imagination. And remember, he wrote songs and he's very creative. So he was that way with her. And she wanted mommy out of the picture. <laughs> so, okay. but we we have a great relationship now. So, okay, but I, yeah. I have to ask you this. So, how was he as you know a parent? Were you able to, you know, um, be on the same page when it came time to discipline her or make decisions? Because that triangle, when there's three of you, I always say three is a difficult number because somebody always yeah. feels left out. Um, he respect you that the two of you were the decision makers uh, for her. Not at all. Not at all. In fact, um, I think we were really good parents for the first five to seven years because, you know, she she did what we told her. I was always the disciplinarian. He was her friend. He never once disciplined her. And I remember many times because she's, you know, she's Mensa. He's probably Mensa. Um, They're brilliant. And so he would turn to her to help him with like putting the computer together or, you know, fixing something in the house, even at a young age, because she thought like him. And so he, he, he wouldn't go on. He went on one field trip, Margo, when she was like in second or third grade, a little girl started running away from the rest of the kids. He came home so overwhelmed. He says, I will never go on another field trip again. And he didn't. He didn't. It was too much for him. Play date. He didn't take our daughter. I mean, he couldn't go to somebody else's house and be like on a play date and have to watch our daughter and multiple kids. He couldn't do it. And when she would have friends over, oftentimes he would go into his computer room Mm -hmm. and um, I'd say to her, where's your daddy? Oh, I think he's in his computer room. So he, he, he didn't handle those play dates or visitors very well. And I, I thought he was being antisocial, but he wasn't. He was just doing what he wanted to do or doing what was best for him. Yeah, I can share a story about that because um, when my son was growing up, I owned a bridal salon. So the big days in a bridal salon are Saturdays. So I had to rely on my husband for the birthday parties, the, you know, a lot of the functions and that. So, you know, my son, this one time got invited to a birthday party and you know what goes through it. You have to RSVP, you have to buy the gift, you wrap the gift, you put all the clothes out, you give them the invitation and you have everything all set. So I said, you know, here it all is laid out for you. You just have to drive him to the party. (laughs) 
So I come home from work and I said, how was the party? And he says, oh, I couldn't find it. So I took Jake to Chuck E. Cheese. I'm like, oh my (laughs) gosh. Because the first thing that goes through my mind is, you know, when you don't show up for a party that you've RSVP'd through, my kid's never going to get invited to another party. (laughs) My husband didn't, you know, he just doesn't have that social um, intelligence like that. So he didn't understand by not taking to, to the party what that would mean for Jake socially and for our family socially. And uh, yeah, so it wasn't long after that. I, I um, you know, chose to give up my bridal salon and because uh, I felt like I was not just because of that. I felt like I was missing out on a lot with my son. And uh, like you, I wanted to have two, but we only ended up having um, one. And part of that was the reason it was a very challenging time raising a child. And I thought, I don't know if I can go through this with two. <laughs> and so we decided yeah. to, to have one. And I, that's just being very honest because it's hard enough with one. And I really applaud all the you know listeners out there with you know children and the time in the relationship, raising the children. That's that's a difficult, it's just a difficult time in any relationship, but in our relationship kind of really in neurodiverse relationship, I think it's it's um extra difficult. Yeah, I agree. And and um I have to be honest with you, my hu- my ex-husband ran to get a vasectomy after we had our daughter, ran to get a vasectomy. <laughs> he couldn't get there fast enough. And good for him because I would have talked him into having a second child. And later on, when we talked about it years, years later, after our daughter was much older, I said, if we had had a second child, we would have been divorced. And he said, absolutely. But again, we didn't know we were neurodiverse. We just knew in some areas of our relationship, our limits. I wanted to talk a little bit about um, you, um, being the breadwinner and how that felt for you and your experience with wanting him to succeed, supporting him to, to succeed in his career and um, the frustration with that. It's a tough one. Um, You know, I knew his potential and I think, you know, I run a support group for neurotypical partners and I hear this all the time, you know, they look at their partner and they see this potential. I thought he could be anything that he wanted. And so I supported buying equipment for him to have a recording studio in our apartment. And then he wanted to do acting. So he got the, you know, the photos and everything he wanted, I supported. And then he wanted to do a film. He had written a script and it was a short film and he wanted to do it. And it was in 2003, I think, when we were turning 40. And I said to him, take a year off. I can support us for a year. And he was thrilled. I was thrilled. You know, our daughter was, I don't know, six, seven, eight, whatever. And and everything was fine. I was in a great job. But he was only supposed to take off for a year, Marco. And he was supposed to get another job. And at the time, he was working like in sales and in um, a store. Um, And he never looked for another job when we were getting close to that one-year mark. And I kept asking him, are you going to get another job? Are you going to get another job? And he wasn't looking. The unfortunate thing is both of our fathers died that year that he was supposed to go back to work. So we had stuff we had to take care of. But I kept asking him, are you going to go back to work? Are you going to go back to work? 
and he didn't look. And the one year turned into two, turned into five, turned into over seven years that he did not work. Mm -hmm. And that is probably the beginning of when I started thinking about ending our marriage and that he didn't get another job until 2011. So he stopped working end of 20, 2003, 2004, and didn't go back to work until the beginning of 2011. And he, he got a quote unquote full-time job, but I think it was so difficult for him to transition back into work that he took the 40 hours and somehow was able to create a schedule that was 20 to 25 hours. And his boss was flexible with him. And he got the job in IT, which was something he had done previously. And um, I said, no, you have to work full time. We need the money. And you can't go from working not at all to only working 20 to 25 hours. And I said, I'm going to divorce you. And looking back, it had to be so stressful for him. Mm-hmm. You know, I was on top of him all the time, you know, saying, get a job, get a job, get a job. And then when he had a job, I'm like, you need to keep the job. Otherwise I'm divorcing you. I can't imagine what must've been going on inside his head and in his heart and in his soul. Now that I know we're neurodiverse, but um, the job became his number one priority. And he started staying, he would go in at 2, 2.30, 3 o'clock. The store that he was working in closed at 6, but he needed to be alone to do his work. He, he couldn't work around other people very well. So he would stay at the store sometimes until 8 or 9 o'clock. And he was getting home later and later. And our daughter was in high school and she had her own life. So I got so lonely. So here's, here's a message for your listeners. You know, um, if I, I think if I would have continued to be the breadwinner and he could have just stayed at home and created and took care of the household chores and all of that, we might still be married. We might, if, if I was okay with that, you know, Um, but, but that's never what I wanted. I never wanted to be the only breadwinner. I wanted a partner in all areas of my life. And then it so, feels like a parent-child relationship with you. Yes. And that's yes. what becomes difficult and then builds up some resentment because you are the breadwinner and now you have to balance everything of, of work and the stress of your work as well as the family life and, and picking up all the slack there. It's interesting. He found a way to make it work for him, you know, by staying late, but that didn't help the family life at all. So, and I know the loneliness, and I know so many of our listeners, we talk about this and, and it does become such a lonely relationship and, you know, very isolating. And, you know, and that's why, you know, I really encourage through healing Cassandra and part of my mission in that is that, you know, women switch the focus from their husbands to themselves and, and, you know, get a life outside of them, you know, have some personal agency to get friends and interests and all of those things, because the loneliness is a killer. So I want to move forward now to, um, so how long have you been divorced? Three and a half years. Um, and, and I want to tell your listeners that I actually went on an antidepressant and an anti-anxiety medication. I went on Cymbalta 
And it was really, really hard for me to go down that path because I'm a social worker. I have an amazing support system of friends and family. I should be able to take care of these things and deal with them and get through the depression by myself is what I kept telling myself. But I was going through menopause. Okay. So it was a perfect start. Menopause, separation, possible divorce, and a horrible depression and loneliness and, and anxiety because every time he said he wanted to divorce me and didn't do it, it was crazy. Um, but I've been divorced three and a half years. In those three and a half years, I've had um, two other relationships and dated other men. Um, but, you know, two men that I was with for longer than that. Uh, and it's, it's been an amazing learning experience because both of those men were probably on the spectrum. So it seems the, like you're attracted to the same type of men, which uh, that was going to be a question for yeah. you is did that any of that change? Yes. Yeah, so, so I think what changed is I started like what you're trying to promote with so many women I started to look at my triggers. I started to look at my codependency. I started to look at why was I depressed? And the Cymbalta helped me. It also helped with the anxiety, um, but it, it doesn't change your environment. So I knew I wanted another relationship after my divorce. I knew I did, and I had to work on myself. So it took, I would say a good year and a half of just being with Mona. And then, um, yeah, this guy came into my life who I had dated in college and we started going out and we were in that relationship for almost a year. And in that relationship, what's really neat, Margo, is um, I had boundaries for the first time in my life. Yeah. And my boundaries were really, really strong. <laughs> so what did that look like for you? Give us, give us an example. Yeah. Yeah. So um, when he had his first meltdown, the guy I was dating, I mean, he screamed at me at the top of his lungs while we were in a car with his daughter in the back seat because he thought that I had done something um, to, to undermine his parenting. His daughter wanted food and I went through the McDonald's drive through. He got upset at me because he had plans in his head that he didn't share. And I said to him, don't you ever, ever talk to me like that again. I said, um, if you do, our relationship is over. Now, at the time, he kept asking me if I thought he was on spectrum. And I said, no, because he was exactly the opposite of my ex. My ex would shut down and he was a screamer. His meltdowns were something I had never, ever seen in my marriage. So um, I think he is on the spectrum. and. So I had those boundaries. He never screamed at me again, but he would start shutting down when he knew he had done something that I didn't like. And I was very vocal about it. I didn't scream at him. I didn't yell. I just was very firm. And I said, I don't appreciate when you talk to me like that, or I don't, I didn't appreciate that comment, or I didn't appreciate what you did. I would prefer if you do this. I was very specific about what I wanted. Um, he would shut down. Because he knew if he screamed at me again, our relationship was over. Because I wasn't going to be, I wasn't going to be the object of his his mean um, screaming. I mean, he could get me. So that, that's one of the things. The other thing is, um, 
I have my own friends and I wanted to spend time with them. And I had my own life and I was running a nonprofit. And, you know, he was not my only, you know, reason for joy. And, um, you know, there was no codependency in that relationship. None at all on my part. I think there might've been a little on his part, but not on my part. And so, but I hadn't healed from the triggers from my marriage. So do you think that's why you were attracted to the same kind of man to kind of go through that and have an opportunity to take a look at some of those behaviors? Yes, I think it was, I think it accelerated my healing. And, And it's so fascinating when you can look at everything through a neurodiverse lens. And I see that he came back into my life to help us both heal. Um, you know, he had just got, he was going through a divorce when we first reconnected and, um, he divorced and then we started dating and he needed to heal because he had been married for 20 years and I'd been married for 30 years. We both helped each other heal, but I don't think we really knew it. You know, that's interesting. So how long were you in that relationship? Um, 10 months. Yeah. We were friends for two, we were friends for two months and then dated for 10 months. It was a year that we knew we had been reacquainted. And what was so wonderful, Margot, and and I think it's important for listeners to kind of think about this, is what I didn't get in my marriage, I got in that relationship, but things that I valued and were strengths in my marriage, I didn't have in that relationship. And I'll give you two. So the man I dated after my divorce would call and text me every single day. In the morning, he would text me, good morning. He'd text me throughout the day. We talked every night. We didn't live. We lived two hours away from each other. So, but we would see each other almost every weekend, but we talked or texted every single day and we made plans to get together either at my house or his house every weekend because he had a, a teenage daughter and my ex didn't do that. He wasn't the only way he would respond or oftentimes the only way he would respond to a text, he told me, if is, is if I sent him 911. He told me, he told me that he couldn't, like he couldn't take himself away from his work during the work day. So if I really absolutely needed to talk to him, that I should text him 911. And then I could text him maybe a question or whatever, meaning you need to respond quickly. And I thought, 911 is for emergencies. Why can't you just respond to my text? I got that from the guy I dated after my divorce, but he would tell me repeatedly that he had physical intimacy issues. Mm. And so, and he was a high functioning alcoholic. Oh, so lots of baggage. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, he, he had his own business and everything was wonderful in that area, but a lot of drinking. And the intimacy issues. So where my ex-husband and I had an amazing sex life and, you know, it was great for all those years. We had a really good um, sex life, the man I was dating, but it was different. It was like, we had to have sex at certain times in certain places and certain, you know, I had to follow his routine where with my ex, it, you know, kind of anything went. And I loved that. And also my ex, this is another strength. He would give me back rubs. He would give me foot rubs. And when I asked the new guy I was dating, if he would do that, he goes, no, I will not. Don't ask me to put lotion on you either. So there were sensory issues that 
I had never experienced in 32 years with my ex. Yeah. I think it's so interesting you're sharing this because, um, you know, when we're in this difficult marriage, you know, sometimes difficult and challenging, and we just, you know, I know I've done this fantasize about, the, you know, how the grass is greener on the other side, and I'm going to meet this perfect guy, and he's going to, you know, that whole fairy tale. Right, thing, right, 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 right. Thing. And, um, you know, it's not always like that. When my husband and I were separated, I, I did go on with a girlfriend, one of those dating apps, and mm-hmm. I started looking through them, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, <laughs> oh, you know, I, I, I'll stay with the devil. I know. <laughs> I know. I know. And I'm just saying that's, you know, that was, you know, my, my experience, but you know, it's different for, you know, for everyone. Was it hard for you to get back out there? Yeah. And, and I'm going to be honest with your listeners. I mean, when we separated, I, before we even separated, I told my ex I'm getting a match.com. Now, how rude was this? Okay. I told him, I said, I'm getting a match.com because I need to know that another man wants me because, because I mean, you know, that's how I felt. And I'm sure there's a lot of other people that feel that way. I thought it would make him jealous Yeah, because I didn't know we were neurodiverse. I, I don't know if I hurt him or he just didn't care. He, I don't know. Cause he never talked about it. Um, but I went on dates. Like I started going on dates. I would say within two weeks after we separated and I would, you know, meet any guy that was interested. And um, at first, the first date I went on, I'm driving, you know, to meet this guy. And I'm like, am I really friggin' doing this? Am I really doing this? I'm separated. I've been with the same guy for 30 years. Am I doing this? And, and I was like strong. And I'm like, yes, you're doing this, Mona. And we had a great time. And he was the first guy that I dated, you know, who he has a, a child who's on the spectrum and he realized that he's on. So that, that was the other ones that was on the spectrum. And what did you learn from that relationship and how long was that? Yeah. So um, we, we've been on and off again for, for years. In fact, we kind of became friends with benefits like um, at the end of last year, but we're not anymore. Um, what I realized is his child is his priority and should be. And his child is like pre-adolescent. I think he's 11 or something. And um, he he realized he's probably not good to be in a relationship. Um, again, I will tell you, I think sex is one of his special interests. <laughs> <laughs> I lucked out. That's, I, that's why you're keeping the benefits. <laughs> oh, yeah, we were for a while, but that's done now. One of the things I realized is that, and, and, and I think that my story with the sex is really not the norm, um, but I happened to get a few men who made sex their special interest. So this, this guy I dated after our separation, he had studied tantric sex. Oh yeah. So he, you know, very focused he, and very, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it was wonderful. And, you know, um, I think an Aspie who really enjoys physical intimacy and sex, um, the focus can be phenomenal. Okay. But I want to ask you this. So, you know, with your husband and with these men, you know, it was great in the bedroom, well, with two of them, but then how was it with your husband, you know, in, you know, everyday life, would he hold your hand? Was he affectionate or was, did he save that all for the bedroom? 
if um, he, it's funny, if, if I took his hand, of course he would, he would hold my hand. Um, I don't remember him initiating that a lot at all. Um, but I will tell you when I would get mad at him, he would get extremely affectionate because he knew that was very important to me. It was like his way of apologizing without saying, I'm sorry, because I don't think he knew what he did oftentimes yeah. to hurt me or he didn't know the bluntness of his comment um, had affected me. He in behind closed doors or in our house, he, you know, could be very affectionate, the foot rubs, the massages, all of that stuff. Um, but I don't know if he, I don't, I don't think he um, disliked PDA, you know, public displays of affection. I just think it, it I don't think it really mattered to him, to be honest with you. Hmm. Um, but if I did it, if I initiated, he absolutely would hold my hand. So what is the, your relationship with your ex-husband now? Do you see him? Um, well, we we were friendly with each other. Um, but now in the last probably six to nine months, that has changed. And I, I have told him the door is always open to him. But um, I don't think he wants to talk to me. I think he's mad at me for a few things. Um, one of them, I think, is sharing what I'm sharing because, you know, the truth, the truth can hurt, um, but it's, I have made it a practice that I don't use my last name in any of the work that I'm doing. I don't use his first name, but I think your, your mess becomes your message. And for those women that really want to share their story to help others know that they're not alone, I think it's important to do it. And so I can't tell you, Margo, how many hundreds of people have reached out to me and thanked me for doing this work. And so, you know, he was supportive of it from the very beginning, but something pissed him off. And he has every right to feel the way he does. I hope one day we'll be friendly again. But, you know, that's up to him. Has he dated anyone? Oh, yeah. Uh, he, I, we both dated during our separation. Um, and after we divorced, um, I don't know how long after we divorced, probably a year, year and a half, he did meet somebody. And I think he's still dating her. Um, and you know, I hope he's happy and I hope they're in a good place. You know, I want that for him, but you know, I, I don't know for sure. Well, you definitely seem like you're in a great place. Fantastic. And, and it took time though, right? Cause I, I think our, oh. you know, the ladies need to know that this, none of this stuff happens overnight. And you know, they're no. probably sick of hearing me say it, that it's a process <laughs> and a practice and, right. you know, it, it just takes time. You just can't. And that's why a lot of the self-help stuff, you know, you just read this book and you think you're going to be all fixed in that. And it just doesn't work that way. Everything of any real substance or to change your life. And if you're going to go deep, that yeah. takes time because it's like an onion. There's so many layers. And when you think you've just got it all down and you're healed, then something else, you know, will, will, uh, will come up in that. So it's just, you know, noticing and taking the time for yourself, you know, like we, we talked about, uh, 
it's it's really has to happen from each one of us. We have to be responsible and have personal agency. And so I, I do want to talk a little bit about, um, you know, there's a lot of women out there and include, you know, including myself throughout the years where you just, you know, are thinking about leaving and saying, this is it, you know, I, I can't do it anymore. I want a divorce. So what advice, you know, would you, would you give them if they're, you know, just thinking about it, you know, maybe how to prepare or some questions to ask themselves? Yeah. I think there's quite a few things that they should think about. Number one, financial um, stability, because I know that's a big issue, especially if you haven't really worked or you've only worked part-time, to make sure that you can do it on your own. And if you can't, at this particular time, find a way to be able to do that, Um, whether it's, you know, getting a roommate or moving in with somebody temporarily or whatever to save money. Um, the other thing I think is you need to work on yourself, whether that's to get a coach or a therapist or your support system, if you can't afford therapy or a coach, uh, to really have people who know you and understand you be willing to listen and to, to give you back kind of what you need, whether it's support or the truth. You know, I mean, several of my friends said, when are you going to make a decision so that you can begin your healing process. And I'm like, I'm not ready. I'm not ready. I I still love him. I still love him. But there comes a point where you're losing yourself. And I actually took my high school graduation picture and put it on my shelf in my living room when I made the decision to um, separate and then finally divorce to remember who I was at 18 because I had lost that person. So, you know, if you have lost yourself, Find the right people to help you remember who you were and then get the help to get back the essence of yourself. The other thing is medication helped me. Um, And if you need, if you think you need medication, talk to your OBGYN. That's the, the doctor who got me on the Cymbalta or talk to your GP. And, you know, if you, think that there's a way in which you can live in separate locations and still have a loving relationship with your partner. I think that's worth putting on the table because I did actually put that on the table, but my ex is like, you know, we'd be in two separate places. We'd have double the bills. Well, while we were dating, because we dated during our separation, that's what happened. Um, And I think that your relationship is not a community project. And everybody can have their opinion of what's best for you, but only you know, really, if it's time to end the marriage, if there are still alternatives. And please, if you can find a therapist who has who has um, training in working with neurodiverse couples, I would highly recommend that um, because the wrong therapist who doesn't understand ASD can really destroy or help destroy your self-worth. <laughs> um, and that's kind of what happened with me. So yeah, those are, those are my thoughts right now. You said so many great, great things in there and it's true. There's nothing wrong with, you know, going on medication to, so then you can kind of feel a little bit better um, about yourself. And if you can find a good therapist, although it's, you know, difficult because, 
it just amazes me that not many of them understand a neurodiverse relationship. I, I, I just am so amazed when I hear from late from the ladies and the, my experience experience where we just can't find anybody that you know understands the dynamic. And and a lot of times when you do go into those, uh, go into therapists, they tend to make us look bad because yes. they don't really understand the entire picture of the relationship. And it's the same with our friends and family. They don't see what happens behind closed doors. So, no. you know, they, they just have no idea of, of the communication uh, difficulties that, that uh, are involved. And then I also wanted to circle back to, to talk about the financial piece, because I think that's so important. And, you know, a lot of uh, women are home with children and, you know, maybe they can't get a, a job out, outside of uh, the home. But, you know, even just to start with uh, the piece of having your own checking account or understanding yeah. what's going on in your home financially, and then find the things that, you know, again, as we talk about, it's not going to happen overnight. Find some things that you're interested in, and maybe eventually you can take those interests and turn them into a business or find a yeah. job. Think about maybe going back to school, even taking one class, you know, yeah. just something to move you a little bit forward. You may say, well, I just can't do it. I just don't have time. Yes, you can. It goes back to boundaries and learning to let go of things that, you know, you can let go of in order to, you know, work on yourself. And then you'll be much better for it because you'll start to feel better. And uh, when you start setting those boundaries, boy, it is, it does, it is, it's empowering. Absolutely. And, and I want to tell you and, and your audience, um, I am still, or I was until about maybe six months ago, triggered by my ex. And the last time we saw each other in person was May of 2021, like the weekend of Mother's Day. I had asked him if he would meet me so we could chat. And there were things that I wanted answers to because I was healing and I wanted to know why he had done certain things. I mean, I know because we were neurodiverse and he, you know, didn't know he was and he's still... Um, I don't know how much healing he has done as far as our relationship goes, but I've done tons. But I remember sitting there with him for two hours, Marco, and the entire time I cried. And I think I cried and he didn't know why I was crying. And I'm not sure I really knew why I was crying until I got home and I processed it by myself. I think for the first time, I truly understood all the challenges we had had because I think I was healing by piecemeal, if that makes sense. Yes. I was healing the things I could heal in the moment and I had the energy for, you know, through new relationships and through therapy and through my own journey. But seeing him, I had no feelings for him for the first time in my life. Yeah. Ah. And this was, this was what, seven, eight, nine months ago. I had no feelings. I didn't, I I will always love him. I mean, he's the father of my daughter or our daughter, but I didn't hate him. I wasn't angry with him. I didn't feel really any love for him. And I didn't even like him. He was just like, to me, almost a stranger. 
And what I realized is there's nothing he can say or do. And I think this is important for listeners to hear that is going to heal me. Nothing. If he apologized, because I was looking for some apologies. Mm -hmm. And when he said in response to some of the questions I asked, he said, I don't have an answer for you. I, I don't know why I did that. And I'm like, okay. And then I realized it's not about him anymore. It's not about him healing me or helping me heal. I have healed so much and now I can let go of needing answers from him. Boy, Mona, that's such growth. I mean, tell me, how many years was it from the time you divorced or how about separated to that point? It was over five years. Years, Marco. Not not overnight. (laughs) No. And the thing that that your listeners need to hear is I'm a social worker. I have three degrees in social work. I have a circle of friends that's amazing, some of whom are in social work. And I took that long. And I said to him the next day after I got home and I was thinking about it, I said, Thank you for meeting me, because he didn't have to meet me. And I said, I now have clarity about our relationship. Thank you. Uh, it was amazing. It's it was amazing. So freeing, you know, it's just so freeing. Oh. And now, you know, on to the next. What, you know, what a journey that you've that you've been on. And uh, you've just really come out uh, of it on, <clears throat> so well on the other side. And that should give our listeners hope because I know, you know, when we're just in it and we tend to lose hope. You said it so beautifully, you know, it's up to us to be responsible and it has to be, it's not a community project, you know, it's it's an inside job, it's digging deep, it's facing things that, you know, we may not want to face and healing different aspects of our, our life. And, and whether you stay in the marriage, you leave the marriage, that's work that needs to be done anyways. And then you'll be have the clarity like you have now. That will give you the clarity to say, oh, you know what? Time for me to move on. Or you know what? I can make this work. And, you know, that that is what's, you know, freeing and beautiful because now you have choices. So this was such a wonderful hour. <laughs> I mean, I think we got into some great things. I think our... Um, our listeners will really find it beneficial. And thanks again. You know, I'm always amazed at how uh, vulnerable and open a lot of my guests are at sharing. And like you said, you know, your message, your message. Tell our listeners how they can find you. That is really easy. They can go to our website, which is neurodiverselove.com, or they can follow me on Instagram at neurodiverse underscore love. Or they can send me an email at neurodiverselove, the number four, the letter U at gmail.com. And I run free support groups, peer support groups for neurotypical partners. So if you DM me or you send me an email or you go to the website and ask for more information, there are two support groups uh, a month and we do them on Zoom. And like I said, they're free and you can pop in for one or you can keep coming back for all of them. It's, it's up to you. We have people from all over the world that join the support groups. Yes, it's really great. And they're very helpful. So thank you so much. And uh, until next time, I really appreciate that you came on the podcast. It was a pleasure. And I hope that my story helps some folks feel like they can make their next right decision for themselves. I know it did. So thank you. Thank you.
Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was another great podcast. Thank you for joining us. And remember, if you'd like to find out more about the Healing Cassandra membership community, head on over to our website, www.healingcassandra.com, and you can find all the information you need to sign up. I hope to see you inside the community. Again, until next time, remember to treat yourself kindly.